Now, as most of you know here, we are going to be looking for a senior pastor at Bundy. After more than 20 years of serving here faithfully, Neil will be retiring in the near future. And the question that many will be having is who will replace Neil? Uh, Neil's are big shoes to fill, okay? And, and that's a big axe to fill as well. That, that's a real axe. He, he did that at a Christmas talk. And don't worry, it was for a kid's talk, okay? <laughs> now, you heard uh, in the last couple of weeks that the Presbytery has approved the opening of a position called colleague and successor. Now, the next step facing our church is to put together a selection committee from our church who will be looking for the next senior pastor. Who might this be? Now, I'm, I'm just going to talk about it while Neil's, Neil's not here, is he? No, no, Jane, he's not here. I'm going to talk about it, a few options. But I just want you to imagine that we were doing this like a political party. Okay, Neil's retiring and there's going to be a leadership spill. Okay, so here's one option, the assistant pastor, Andy. Now, he's definitely been here for a long time. He's held many different portfolios, maybe too many to do a really good job of any one of them. He's been loyal, second in charge for a long time. In fact, someone who once left the church said to him, when will you be the senior pastor of Bundy? When will you stop being Peter Costello to Niels John Howard? Okay, true story. Someone actually said that. Now, the problem is Andy's not ordained. Amongst other problems, he's not ordained. He can't officially be the senior pastor. Well, then how about the associate pastor, Clinton? Now, he spent his time developing his experience in a different electorate in the eastern suburbs, and he's also fond of a blonde wig. He's known, he's loved by many, and most importantly, he ticks the ordination box. But there's a dark horse lurking, okay? You've got Andrew, our youth coordinator. <laughs> now, he's got significant influence over the younger vote, and he's also begun the process of ordination. Uh, perhaps the unordained pastor, Andy, could maybe influence and manipulate the youth coordinator, maybe to set up a puppet senior pastor. But who are you kidding? I mean, Mr. Incredible is not going to be manipulated. And he once worked as a chef. He knows how to use knives. <laughs> He'd just as soon get rid of all of us. Maybe it's going to be someone from the outside. And if that's the case, the rest of us maybe will. We, we better crunch the numbers, see how, how much support there is for us in the party. Maybe we'll do some backroom deals to try and further and preserve our careers. Uh, but maybe still the new leader will come and clean house. Maybe he'll replace the current cabinet with a whole set of new ministers. Now, all of that is acceptable in politics, isn't it? But for God's people, we need to find a better way, don't we? And there is a better way, God's way. Let's pray. Let's have a look at this passage. Gracious Father God, please uh, speak through your word by the power of your spirit, that you would help us to see Christ so clearly that we would worship him, that we would love, that we would depend on him, and that we might know how to love and serve each other. Please help me to speak your word faithfully, clearly, and with love. In Jesus' name, amen. Uh, today, as we look at this passage, we're going to look at three things. Because of Christ, strive for unity through humility. Because of Christ, strive for unity through humility. Now, the context of what Paul the Apostle is saying here starts uh, earlier in the verses before. Uh, Paul wants the Philippian Christians to stand together for the gospel of Christ. 
And in chapter 1, verse 27, he talks about living a life worthy of Jesus. Now, what does that look like for a group of followers of Jesus? It is to stand united. It is to contend together for the sake of the gospel. And that's in the face of opposition. Now, remember that Paul and the Philippian Christians, they are suffering persecution from the, for the gospel. Paul is writing to them from prison. And his readers have suffered real threat. They are suffering. And we're going to see in coming chapters, there's other threats as well. False teachers, the Judaizers, who were opposing the gospel that Paul had proclaimed to them. Now, there's the very real possibility then that the Philippian Christians are going to crumble under this pressure. And in the face of pressure, every man and woman might jump to whatever suits themselves. They might abandon Christ and just do their own thing. We've already seen in chapter 1 that there's at least one group who are mentioned here who are preaching the gospel out of false motives, ambition, out of envy towards Paul and rivalry. Now, Paul is writing to his hearers so that they won't do this. He wants them to stand united in the gospel. And that's the context that leads us to chapter 2. The first thing that Paul says, though, is because of Christ. Here's the first point, because of Christ. Verse 1, if then there is any encouragement in Christ, if any consolation of love, if any fellowship with the Spirit, if any affection and mercy. Now, when Paul is saying if then, he's not saying if as though these Philippian Christians have not experienced Christ. He's writing because they have. And because they have, since you then know Christ, then do this. Or if you've already experienced Christ, how could you not live this out? But what Paul is doing here is he's driving them back to Christ. Before he tells them how to relate to one another, they must first know what they have in Jesus. Because of Christ, they have encouragement. A Christian is never alone because they always have Christ alongside them to encourage them, even in trials. Because of Christ, they have the consolation of his love. And that speaks of a comfort that comes when you suffer for Jesus. Because of Christ, you have fellowship of the Spirit. Uh, Christians are people who have been united with God because Jesus has given them the gift of his Holy Spirit who works in them and who helps them to love others. Because of Christ, they have experienced affection and mercy from Jesus. They know that through the cross of Christ, Jesus will never turn away those who are ashamed, who are guilty, who are burdened and weary. Instead, Jesus will show us tenderness and, comp and compassion. Now, I think one of the most vivid examples for the disciples of this affection, this mercy, was the time when Jesus washed his disciples' feet. This was an act of humble, loving service. And he showed his beloved disciples a glimpse of what he was about to do for them on the cross. He was going to love them to the very end, the end of his life. Now, what is Peter's reaction to this incredible act? Peter, initially, Peter refuses to accept it. Because foot washing is the duty of the, the lowly servant of a household. Instead, they call Jesus Rabbi, Lord. Jesus is in a position of authority over them. So in Peter's mind, how could it be possible that Jesus would do something beneath 
him and beneath them. Now, I think it's an understandable, understandable reply, isn't it? I mean, if I was in that room, if I was in Peter's shoes, I would have said the same thing. But look at Jesus' reply in verse 8. If I don't wash you, you have no part with me. Now, that's a strong statement, isn't it? What does he mean by this? If I don't wash you, you have no part with me. Now, it's not just about the example, is it? The foot washing, it's not just an example. It's pointing to the cross, and it's pointing to the need for all of us, all of Jesus' followers, to be served by Jesus' sacrifice. Now, unless we are served by Jesus in this way, we have no fellowship with Jesus. Unless our sin is decisively dealt with on the cross, we can have no deep connection to Jesus and we can have no connection to his benefits. Now, Peter struggles to accept this because Peter, I think like us, he's all about bravado, he's all about self-reliance. I can do this in my own strength. Remember what Peter said to Jesus when Jesus predicted that they would abandon him? Even if I have to die with you, I will never disown you, he said. What happened? He denied Jesus three times. His own strength didn't make it. You know when you watch the safety announcement on a plane, they tell you that in the event of an emergency, if the cabin pressure drops, oxygen masks will drop down from above, and the instinctive act of a parent is to do what? Put the mask on your child first. What do they tell you in that announcement? Put it on yourself first. Why? The reason why is that if you don't get oxygen first, you start to lose brain function, and then you're not in a position to help anyone. The Christian life is like that. You cannot serve others without Christ first serving you. Christ is the oxygen that gives life to your service of others. And Peter found out the hard way. Now let me ask you, Have you experienced the encouragement, the consoling love, the affection and the mercy of Jesus? Because that is life-giving oxygen, isn't it? It's obvious, but I need to say it, you cannot be a Christian without Christ. Now, you can do some Christian behaviors, but that is not the same thing as knowing, experiencing Christ, drawing from him, to respond to others. Now, if you're a believer hearing this, when was the last time that you drew a deep breath from your first love? If it's been a while, treasuring Christ, remembering his gospel, treasuring, being thankful for his gospel comes before everything else. Because in Christ we draw life. He's the source of our service, just as branches draw life from the vine. We must draw from Christ. But that is linked to the second point. Because of Christ, strive for unity. If, in fact, believers have been nourished by Christ, then, verse 2, they are able to make my joy complete by thinking the same way, having the same love, united in spirit, intent on one purpose. Drawing a life-giving breath from Jesus How could we not want to share the benefits of Jesus with those around us in the body of Christ? Now, followers of Christ, well, we are to strive for unity in thought, in love, 
in spirit and in purpose. Why? Because of Christ, point one. Now remember, the Christian faith is a team sport, and every member of the team, we contend together for one purpose, the gospel of Christ. Now the analogy that Paul uses in 1 Corinthians is that of a body. Verse uh, 1 Corinthians 12, if one member suffers, all the members suffer. If one member is honored, all the members rejoice. Now that is very personal for Paul. His joy is tied in with the unity of the Philippians. If they're living out this unity, then he rejoices with them. But if not, Paul will do everything he can to spur them on to live out this unity. Look at chapter 4, verse 2. Uh, he mentions two women in the Philippian church who are in some sort of disagreement. And he says in verse 2, I urge Euodia and I urge Syntyche to agree in the Lord. Yes, I also ask you, true partner, to help these women who have contended for the gospel at my side. Now, notice Paul's not taking one side or the other, but rather he is pleading with these two dearly loved sisters in Christ, agree in the Lord. And I take it that Paul mentions them by name because these two ladies are active, prominent people in the church. And for Paul, when Euodia, what binds Euodia and Syntyche is much greater. It's the fellowship of Christ. It's much greater than what divides them. And Paul has no problems co-opting others in the church to help these women strive for unity because Christianity is a team sport. And contending for the gospel is the great cause that binds us together. Uh, the American poet Robert Frost uh, wrote a poem called Mending Walls. And in this poem, the speaker of the poem, he, he meets his neighbor every year and they meet to rebuild the stone fence or wall that divides their properties. And the speaker wonders out loud to his neighbor if this wall between them is even necessary. My apple trees will never get across and eat the cones under his pines, I tell him. But he only says, Good fences make good neighbors. I say, where are the cows? But there are no cows. Before I built a wall, I'd asked to know what I was walling in or walling out. But he says again, good fences make good neighbors. And that's how the poem ends. That's where we get that phrase. I wonder if that's what you believe. Good fences make good neighbors. You know, we're better off keeping each other at an arm's length. Don't get too involved. It's messy. Okay, I respect you're different to me. I'm different to you. Let's do our best to avoid things. Let's keep things at that surface level. You do you, I'll do me. After all, good fences make good neighbors. That's not good enough, is it? for the people of the gospel. Paul gets involved, doesn't he, with Euodia and Syntyche. After all, in God's church, Christ's death has, has removed the dividing wall of hostility between different groups of people. All of us can now have access to peace with God through Jesus, so we must make every effort to live out the unity, the peace that Jesus has won for us between each other. 
Now, keep in mind, unity does not come at all cost. Unity must never come before truth. In chapter 3, Paul is going to warn the Philippians against what he calls the dogs, the evil workers, the false teachers known as the Judaizers. That's not unity language, is it? Now, these people claim to be the real Christians. They insisted to the Philippians that they also had to follow all the requirements of the Old Testament. And Paul told the Philippians and the Galatians have nothing to do with these false teachers because their gospel is not the gospel of Christ. Unity must have truth. And unity must not come at the cost of truth in personal relationships in the church. For example, we can't just say to someone who's been abused just to overlook the reality of that person's sin. We can't tell someone to be united to an abuser who is not repentant of that sin. That is not the gospel of Christ either. For God himself, God only forgives repentant sinners. God only reconciles with repentant sinners. Now, if a person repents, we should do everything we can, make every effort to forgive and to reconcile where possible. That is what it looks like to strive for unity. Now, this brings us to the third and final point, through humility. Because of Christ, strive for unity through humility. Verse 3, do nothing out of selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility, consider others as more important than yourselves. Everyone should look not to his own interests, but rather to the interests of others. Now, according to the Apostle Paul, the important step to unity is humility. Now, the word for humility in the New Testament simply means lowliness. And in verse 3, Paul explains what humility is not. It's not selfish ambition. It's not vain conceit. It's not arrogance. It's not pride. Humility is not concerned with and consumed by self-importance. Now, in the culture of the day when Paul is writing this, humility was not a virtue that people admired and wanted to have. The Jewish, the Greek, the Roman cultures were all honor-shame cultures, just like some of the cultures you're from. Anything that could increase your family's reputation, your family's honor, well, that was what was valued in the eyes of the society. But anything that brought shame was to be avoided at all costs. And so your status in comparison with others was important. Now, humility then was not something you aspired to be because humility is about lowliness. In fact, they saw humility as weak, insipid. Now, as we're going to see next week in the next part of Philippians 2, the ultimate display of Christian humility is what? It's the cross of Christ. And for Paul's first hearers, the cross was not about humility. It was about humiliation. To be crucified, naked, scorned, ashamed. That is a dishonorable way to die. That was the ultimate insult, the greatest shame. And you can see how countercultural then Paul is being by urging followers of Christ to practice humility. And humility today, I think, is still very countercultural. But, but I think it's a bit more complicated than that. I'm going to explain why. In his 2004 book, How to Get Rich, 
Donald Trump writes, show me someone without an ego and I'll show you a loser. Having a healthy ego or high opinion of yourself is a real positive in life. And it seems that Trump has made a huge effort to live this out. He's got no problems cultivating his ego. And sadly, that has come at an expense to those around him. Now, most people, we're, we're turned off by this kind of conceit, this ambitious self-importance. But if you look at the second half of his quote, I actually think most people would agree with him. It's good to have a high opinion of yourself. In fact, I would say that most of what we see in social media is about the obsession with having a high opinion of self. The need to take selfies, to post selfies, to gain likes, to gain follows, the need to gain a sense of worth and validation when people take interest in myself. The need to compare others, to see where we sit in the ranking of honour and shame. Now, while we distance ourselves from the arrogance and the hubris of Trump, we're still very, very obsessed with self, aren't we? Self-belief, self-reliance, self-love, and all of this runs against the grain of humility. Now, I said it's complicated because there's a part of our society that still values humility. Take, for example, Hollywood A-lister Keanu Reeves. Best known for The Matrix and the John Wick movie franchises, incredibly successful actor. Now, on the internet, though, uh, Keanu Reeves is the subject of many internet memes because of how different he is compared to most of Hollywood. And what stands out, it appears, is his down-to-earth, relatable humility. There's the sad Keanu meme where he's sitting on a park bench and he's eating a sandwich looking kind of forlorn like the rest of us. But there's also the subway Keanu who, who catches the subway like a normal person instead of a private limousine. In fact, he gives up his seat for fellow passengers. Or the time when the paparazzi caught him hanging out with a homeless man. Or the numerous photos of him with female fans who hold him closely and look where his hand is. It's hovering away from their bodies, not touching them interpreted as a sign of respect towards them. Or the time he gifted a Harley Davidson motorcycle to each of his stunt crew in the Matrix. Or when he donated large sums of his earnings to cancer research. Keanu Reeves doesn't talk any of this up. And people like it. We're drawn to this other-centered humility. And I think that helps us understand humility, isn't it? John Dixon, a Christian historian and apologist, he wrote a book on humility and he describes and defines humility like this. The noble choice to forego your status, deploy your resources or use your influence for the good of others before yourself. More simply, you could say the humble person is marked by a willingness to hold power in service of others. You see, the essence of humility is it's not about self, but about others. Looking out for the needs, the interests of others, even if that comes at the expense to self, even if it means lowering self, giving up what might be rightfully yours for the good of the other. Now, there is a difference between lowering yourself and loathing yourself. 
Now, some people think humility is to put yourself down, to think less of yourself, almost to humiliate yourself. That's not right. You see, self-promotion occupies a lot of time thinking about self, and so does self-loathing. You're still thinking about yourself a lot, even it's down here. Now, Tim Keller, in his very helpful book, The Freedom of Self-Forgetfulness, points this out. The thing we would remember from meeting a truly gospel humble person is how much they seem to be totally interested in us. Because the essence of gospel humility is not thinking more of myself or thinking less of myself. It is thinking of myself less. And we see this self-forgetfulness in Jesus, don't we? Jesus is completely concerned about the other, not self. You know, and this is, this is from the one who was there before the creation of time, the creation of the universe. This is the one we should bow down and worship. And yet when he spoke to you, it felt like there was no one else in the room except you. Just ask the bleeding woman of Mark 5. Or Jairus and his daughter. Or the crippled man at the pool of Siloam. Or Zacchaeus, the shunned tax collector. Jesus was completely focused on their needs. And when he interacted, he never took anything from anyone. Because those interactions were about him giving them something. Humility is at the heart of who Jesus is. In Matthew chapter 11, when Jesus invites all to come to him, Jesus shows us his heart. He says, for I am gentle and humble in heart. You know, why is the yoke of Jesus on our shoulders? Why is it easy and light to carry? Because Jesus deploys his resources for our need. Jesus forgoes his status for our benefit. Jesus uses his influence to do what is good for us. And we will see more of that next week. Now, Paul goes on to say in verse 5 of Philippians 2 that the humble-hearted Jesus is the one we must imitate. Our Lord who washed our feet in service is the one we should follow in washing other people's feet in humility. There's nothing that promotes unity better in a church than humility. Imagine a church filled with people who seek the good of the other and not the good of self. Like Jesus, we need to ask the question, not what is in this for me, what I can do for you. Now, we heard about BRAC, didn't we? The Bundy Refugee Action Crew. There's a group of people here who are modeling to us what it means to put the needs of others before self. Now, in all honesty, we find humility hard, don't we? Everything in our world screams to us, you are the most important person. Me, me. Can't be you, it's got to be me. We struggle because that urge to look out for our own interests is constantly there. And the temptation to compare ourselves, to see who's above us, to see who's beneath us, to envy, to judge, to avoid those who we can't benefit from, to associate with those who we can benefit from, to resent those we find hard. 
And at times the thinking of the world seeps into the church, doesn't it? That we must focus on loving ourselves first instead of loving others. What's the answer? It's Christ, isn't it? Because of Christ. In the commentaries I was reading for this sermon, I came across a quote by a commentator, Roger Ellsworth, who comments about how the book of Philippians is full of joy. Now, who, who wouldn't want to live a life full of joy? You know, I, I want joy like Paul. Paul's writing this in prison, and yet he can say he's full of joy. What's the key? Ellsworth writes, Paul's formula for joy stands out in Philippians. It is J-O-Y. Jesus, others, yourselves. So very often we try to have Paul's joy while we reverse his formula. It cannot be done. We can't spell joy by putting the Y first, and we can't find joy by putting ourselves first. You can't have joy if you're looking for yodge. Okay? If you remember nothing else from this sermon, remember that. You can't have joy if you're looking for yodge. In the months to come, as we search for a new senior pastor, what are we going to be looking for? A passionate biblical preacher, a strong, decisive leader, a visionary with a plan to grow God's kingdom, multi-gifted manager of people who can train, who can delegate. All well, all good. But if he's not humble in heart like Jesus, if he does not draw breath from Jesus, our unity will be shot to pieces. It's just a matter of time. And what will that senior pastor find when he's here in us? As he looks at us, would he find people full of yodge or full of joy? Because of Christ, strive for unity through humility. Let me pray. Gracious Father God, we give you thanks for Jesus. It is so stunning that he had equality with you, gave that up in order to humble himself to death on a cross. Death like a slave. And for this we are thankful, for we know affection and mercy, consoling love, encouragement. Father, please help us to draw breath from Jesus. And help us, once we have, to respond to that same love by striving to live out that unity with each other. Father, you know our hearts. You know we find some people difficult we avoid some, we're drawn to others, but help us to love like Jesus, to put others before ourselves in humility, to look at his example and say there is nothing we would not do for him. Strengthen us to do that, to live that out. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.